Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. All right, welcome back to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. Here we are, episode 17. Again, joined by Robert and Zach. Uh, hey, guys. Hola. Hey. Yeah. Bonus so, nachos. Uh, we were just talking about nachos, and I'm oh, yeah. really wanting nachos now. They're mine! They're mine, nachos! Oh, gosh. I really want... I know, I'm sorry. One second, derail. I can derail anything in five seconds. I'm good. I just really want nachos now. No, but no. I'm going to be thinking about that the whole podcast now. Um... Like nacho, 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 nacho. Nacho. Okay, but uh, no. Uh, last time we, and the last time we met, we were discussing martyrs, um, and uh, kind of the martyrs of uh, Christianity of the early church, and uh, I believe we were gonna pick up, um, kind of talking about some more, uh, profiles of some of these early martyrs, and um, so yeah, we'll pick right back up uh, there on that topic. So. Zach, Robert, uh, yeah, kicks off. Oh, yeah. So I'll start us off uh, with this second part of the Martyr series. So to catch people up, uh, you've probably heard the episode before that, but we were talking about the, just the idea of martyrdom in the early church in general. We shared a couple of specific stories, and I'm about to share a much more brief story than Justin Martyrs, but they're still very important. Um, but basically... The early church suffered persecution and literal death for what they believed. They were following the apostles. The apostles didn't, they never said, look at me. They said, look at Christ. Elevate Christ. Glorify Christ. We give it all for him. And instead of crushing the rebellion in fear like the Romans thought it would, martyrdom escalated the amount of evangelism that they were seeing. And so it eventually totally got out of their hands. But uh, that's an, uh, an exciting conversation for later in the story. But basically what is going on in these martyrs' lives, the, the faith is new. Belief in Christ is a brand new concept. There are many, many people in their world that have never even heard the name Jesus. You can hear Jesus now almost anywhere. Uh, you're either going down the interstate and you see a wooden sign that says Jesus saves. You hear your grandma talk about Jesus. You see someone with a sign downtown that says Jesus. You turn... sub your toe, or somebody subs their toe, and they say Jesus. Or you uh, uh, maybe a little bit more passionately. Yeah, absolutely. Negatively. <laughs> or you're flipping through stations and you know you turn on a, an animated cartoon and there's someone being bold trying to put a, a dancing, goofy version of Jesus on their show. What I'm saying is everybody knows the name. It is one of the most famous, if not the most famous name on the planet today. For them, this this idea, this this person was brand new. There, there was no celebrity named Christ. There, there was nothing there. It was brand new to them, and they were willing to die for it still. So to launch into the first story of this episode... Uh, it's much more brief. Um, we know less about their lives than the lives of the people we talked about in the episode previously. But they're still very, very uh, important and well-known because uh, they actually had writings, uh, diary writings left behind that told us about some of the things they faced towards the end of, the, end of their lives. One reason um, I chose these two, there are two who actually suffered and died at the same time, because it can be very easy to think about the early church fathers and the martyrs and only go through the men and forget that women actually suffered as well. And children. And children. And so I actually have both in this story, to be honest. 
um, two women who were both pregnant. One of them was only 22 at the time and had given birth to her child and was trying to nurse it in prison. As the story goes, and the the reason we have this story, if anyone out there is uh, kind of an amateur historian, scholar, the type who would be interested in this, there's a document known as uh, the Passion of, and their names are Perpetua and Felicity. Passion of per- Perpetua and Felicity. And their relationship was um, a servant and noblewoman. So basically, uh, if I believe correct, if I remember correctly, Perpetua had the servant girl named Felicity, and they were both captured and imprisoned together, and they were both believers. Now, what's kind of, well, it's it's sad regardless. There's heartbreak in the fact that they had to pass away, but they were brand new to the faith. They were something called uh, catechumens, which in the early church, that was a phase of your life. You had put your faith in Jesus. You had become one of them. You were just now learning the basics you had not yet received baptism until you understood enough to be able to be trusted to understand what you were doing in baptism. So they would take you through these classes, teach you a basic theism, who is Jesus, a basic scripture, basic principles. Is your life morally holding up to what a Christian believes? What can we correct in your life if you really intend to follow him? And if the answer was no, they could walk away. If the answer was yes all the way, then they could be baptized and they were considered a mature believer in the church. Now, these women were going through those classes when they were captured. They never had the chance to be baptized. I believe that their faith was sincere, so they are in heaven right now. But these two young women, they go in a prison. They're actually held for a long time. Before they're brought out and they're executed. But this, this document, The Passion, it actually details the things they went through. Talking about their discomfort, uh, the, the Ill, illnesses they had to go through. Um, one of the women who had her child, you know, the indignity of trying to breastfeed in a body that had been beaten by guards who didn't care about her. Um, the, the fact that they went and they basically stood up and were killed, I believe, along with their infants. I believe so, because I don't, I don't see the ancient Romans putting too much stock on children. They left them in the woods to die, for crying out loud. And so I, these two young women definitely died, most likely their children. And what really kind of disgusts me, I mean, the fact that they died disgusts me, but the only reason they did this was to celebrate the emperor's birthday. It was an emperor at the time uh, by the name of Septimus Severus. He's one of the later lesser-known emperors uh, before Christianity became tolerated and became legal. But what they would do to celebrate his birthday, just to entertain the emperor, they would actually capture these people who were considered never-do-wells, people who were considered disposable to society. And some of those people were, of course, Christians. That's why they were there. They were martyred for their faith. They were targeted as Christians. They were captured. They were easy to catch because of their pregnant state. And they were kept in these prisons. And what they would do is they would parade them out, them and anyone else who got captured, and slaughter them in violent, exciting ways just to entertain the emperor for his birthday. Happy birthday, by the way. Happy birthday. And, I mean, anyway, if it were not for this idea of a celebration... They would have lived. There was no, in particular, uh, chance of persecution that they got caught up in. Um, there was nothing, you know, their villages weren't necessarily raided. The only reason they had to die was because this emperor celebrated his birthday in this way, and they were just unlucky enough to be part of the dice throw. I mean, just the fact that their lives could have been thrown away that recklessly by somebody with enough, with that much power. Of course, that goes for every martyr that that was in the early church. The reason I chose them was simply to represent the other side of the fence, that women had to suffer through this as well. Um, The unborn children, the born child, they suffered as well, even though their voices will never be heard like their mothers were. But their uh, one takeaway I get from this is simply the fact that they chose to leave diaries behind so that their death wouldn't be wasted. 
even though their lives were thrown away and from all accounts all physical worldly accounts their lives were absolute wastes they were thrown away they were nothing they did not have to die in the slightest and yet their their voices resonate still it's the reason i was able to find their names find their stories because the document the passion of perpetual infelicity lives on and it's through the word not scripture, but I mean the written word in general that God sometimes chooses to keep his word alive through non-scriptural books, if you know what I mean. Uh, God created speech and language, and that's how he chose to allow his gospel to be perpetuated by these women's death. And so only a handful of people witnessed their death. A much, much bigger crowd have read about it since then. So even I'll quote what Scripture says about Abel. He's the first person to suffer death, or even a violent death, for that matter. But Jesus said, you know, his uh, his his blood speaks from the ground still, even though he is dead. His voice speaks still, and it's true of these women. But just one more quick death in the middle of so many names. The reason we remember theirs in particular is because they kept that document, that written document, and it explains why they died for Christ. They chose to be part of the carpenter's people, the people of the Lamb. So I intentionally chose a much less known group. By all accounts, they should have been just another anonymous statistic of the Christians. But because of that document, those two names just happen to stand out, and I believe God has used it in a mighty way, just spreading their stories among so many others. That that'll uh, that will challenge the, your socks off right there. Um, and 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 one thing that we didn't mention in the last uh, recording, but I'd like to mention in this one, there are resources, there are books out there. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great resource if you uh, wanted to learn more about martyrs. Uh, the Voice of the Martyrs is more of a modern-day uh, uh, group that uh, exists today, but the Fox's Book of Martyrs, I believe there's also uh, there's other books out there about martyrs. Uh, I think Jesus Freaks is another, another one. Uh, there yep. might be others. Do you know of any others, Robert? Um, I know there's one. Now, the books he's mentioned are collections of stories. There's one in particular uh, called uh, Tortured for Christ. And I'm trying to remember the author's name off the top of my head. Because he was in Russian Gulag or something. Yeah, he was in the Russian Gulag. So his situation is the same but different. Instead of the ancient Romans, he actually suffered underneath uh, the communist uh, persecution that came with the Soviets many many decades ago and it's literally just a short account in english of his uh his experiences literally being tortured for christ uh, being captured for uh for uh worshiping christ outside of the soviet's very strict regulations yes i, I googled it furiously while i spoke it's called <laughs> tortured for christ by richard armbrand and I'll spoil a little bit of the book. It's powerful regardless. It's a true story, so it's not like I'm spoiling some novel or movie. But at the end of this story, uh, this is his life story. He actually, after he's released, the, the wall falls and he's released from prison. He actually goes to the cemetery where the Soviet soul, uh, guard of the prison he was in uh, used to torment him and punish and, and beat him for being a believer. Uh, when he is out, Rich, Richard Wormbrand, the author, actually goes to the cemetery where this guard, now deceased, is buried, puts a rose on his grave as a small token to say, in Christ I forgive you. Even though you meant all these things for evil, in Christ's power I will forgive you. He couldn't say it in person, but he was able to do that small token. He said that it was always the, the thing that God used in his heart to help him leave that pain in the past so that it didn't eat at him and turn him into someone hollow and bitter. Oh, yeah, there's there are many, many resources out there. Um, and and it's encouraging, it's uplifting, and it's challenging to, to read these uh, stories, sometimes collections, sometimes autobiographies. Um, yeah. 
Um, so Robert threw down the gauntlet talking about those two uh, young ladies. Um, and shared the other one and didn't realize that till I said it all. I was like, wait a minute. No, you're good. <laughs> <That's dude. extra> <laughs> <story>. <laughs> hey, no, this is about martyrs and whether it's, you know, I mean, whether it's now or then, you know, it's it's all good. <laughs> I, mean, well, I mean, it's not good in the sense, but you get what I'm saying. Whatever. It's, it's, you're fine, Robert, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> you're fine despite the horror. Yes. <laughs> you're fine despite the horror, yes. Um, but... Um, kind to go in back into some of the church fathers who were martyred for their faith um as robert attests in the uh fox's book of martyrs there's so many unknown names so many people uh it's just crazy that there was so many people that were killed for their faith um one that stands out that i like to talk about is a um the early church father by the name of polycarp Polycarp was, uh, historians believe that he was born somewhere around 70, roughly 70 AD. And in his early years of life, he was the uh, and, uh, a disciple of John, and uh, John the Apostle, the uh, son of Zebedee. And Polycarp, um, we don't have a lot of... Um, information about him we know that he was a, a follower of jesus we know that he um uh had numerous letters he had many dealings with the church uh he spoke out against two common heresies the day gnosticism and marconianism um and marconianism or marconism i may not be saying that properly i apologize about the scholar, my brotherly scholars out there who are like, he's not saying it right. I apologize. Um, but um, so Polycarp was instrumental in basically kind of like defending the the uh, pure version of Christianity. Again, he was a direct disciple of John, who was a direct disciple of Jesus. And we have, I believe it's the letter of to the Philippians, Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, I believe, is the the writings that we have, it is not um, considered canon. It's kind of like what Robert was talking about um, with these uh, the the two ladies who had a diary journal. Polycarp had a letter, and there's actually other church um, fathers who wrote extensively and referenced the New Testament, things of that nature. And um, and and we have their works still to this day. You can actually you can go and your local Amazon or what have you, and you can type in early church fathers, and some of the the works show up in in publications. Um, but they're out there, so you can get your hands on them. I got my hands on my couple copies of it, uh, different copies of uh, those works about five years ago. So they're out there. Um, but in what's one, one of the really cool things about Polycarp's letter, um, is he references a lot of the New Testament. I mean, he references first Timothy, second Timothy. He met, uh, mentions all the gospels, Mark, Luke, uh, John, Matthew. He references all these works. It's important because reason why it's important is because many people, many scholars today, say, you know, the New Testament wasn't even written until the 4th century, but we know Polycarp lived in the uh, the 1st into the 2nd century, midway into the 2nd century. He was martyred at 86 years of age. Um, so we know this cat existed, and he's referencing books you know, from the 1st century. So it's like these uh, works are clearly older than a lot of our modern uh, scholars would claim. And so I, I feel like he's an important uh, secondary source on on talking about what Christianity is and things like that because um, he was a direct disciple of John, who was a direct disciple of Jesus. I mean, he has, he literally sat on at John's feet and learned what Christianity was, and John sat at Jesus' feet. So, I mean, 
had like the you know I won't say unadulterated, but he had like the just the the pureness of the gospel, the pureness of Christianity, what it truly was. He got that from John, who got that from Jesus. So he is a very important figure, and um, uh, it says, uh, and I believe in his the talking of his martyrdom. He lived to be 86 years old, and there are some different accounts, basically, but what it boils down to um, was that he was tied to a stake. Some uh, some accounts say that he was um, nailed. Other accounts say that he wasn't nailed, but he said that he would not flee, he wouldn't run, that he would you know, allow his hands to be bound and then a fire was kindled underneath him, and that he was uh, basically kind of roasted alive. Um, but oh. then some accounts say that the flames wouldn't touch him, and so they ran him through with a spear, um, and that's what ultimately killed him. Uh, but one thing that they said, and it kind of captures the... Um, the uh, uh, like the... the Emperor worship is he was up on the cross, not on the cross, but on the stake. And the centurion was like, If you just pay homage to Caesar, Caesar, he will let you down. And and Polycarp says, 86 years I believed Jesus, and never once have has he abandoned me. I will not abandon him. And so that was him standing firm for his faith and whether he was consumed by the flames or the flames didn't quite well maybe they started to but it wasn't fast enough for the romans they pierced him with a spear anyway he he uh was martyred for his faith um I believe scholars say 158 somewhere in that time frame 158 and 160 roughly uh, A.D., so second century, mid-second century, whenever he was martyred. Um, and, and the list goes on and on as, as far as people who are martyred for their faith. Um, I find encouragement because, you know, if you think about you know, all these people who, who had the opportunity to renounce Jesus and yet they chose instead to Suffer a cruel fate. Um, you know, I, I, there's other uh, martyrs out there who, men and women who had uh, animal skins sewn to them and thrown in the pit with lions and tigers and various other wild animals and were devoured and, and, and you know all, and then uh, some were thrown in oil, and boiled alive. I mean, all these people. Suffered terrible, horrible deaths, and at any point, all they could, all they had to do, was just bow down and say, "Caesar is Lord." And there were instances of people who did that. I mean, you know, we're we're talking about the people who were martyred for their faith, but there were people uh, who decided that they weren't uh, face that persecution. You know, um, then later there was the issue of, well, you know, whenever the time of persecution was over. You let those people back into the church. Some refused to let them come back in because, like, you desire Jesus. Um, but then others showed forgiveness and allowed them to come back into the, the congregations when persecution ended. Those who actually refused or accepted um, basically falling down at the feet of the Roman emperor and, and, and doing that which they should not do. I mean, so you had both instances of people who... Uh, who did willingly sacrifice their lives, and others who chose to not do that, and kind of like how the church—it's uh, just—it is—it's a powerful, encouraging. Um, yeah, yeah. It's all of it is, and it's just like I guess I hadn't thought about kind of what you had said, kind of at the end of that. Of you know, there were people who did bow down. And who did kind of renounce mm -hmm. um, Christ because they didn't want to face that persecution. 
And I mm. guess like, I guess logically, like, of course that happened, but I guess I'd never thought about that aspect of it of, of, of course, you know, people would have, would have done that or, or yeah. there would have been people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like, how, how does the church deal with that? You know, that was that, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, cause I mean, it's like, Hey, you, you had a chance to be a martyr and you chose not to, you chose to bow down to Caesar. I mean, how do we know that you're not informant and when the next run of persecutions comes that you won't turn this in? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that was one thing, like, it was those people, I mean, it was touch and go a lot of instances. Like, I mean, one emperor would be like, okay, no. Nah. It basically fell on the whims of the emperor of whether or not he wanted to enfor- enforce for worship and persecution of the church, Christian church or not. Because you did have some... At emperors that you know they might have been more lax and and not really been adamant about stamping out the Christian faith, and so wouldn't persecute the church quite so extensively as then like somebody like Demetrius or Nero or I believe Vespian's another really big uh, emperor that yeah. was heavily focused on persecuting the church. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Of course, that also, Zach even tied it into Simon Peter. I mean, that goes into questions of, you know, if this person denied the faith in the moment, uh, you know, he just mentioned the the controversy of whether they should be accepted back. It, it probably it, it it ignited a few theological debates over, you know, what does this mean? Does this mean that the person who denied Christ was never really a believer or were they a real mm. believer who had a moment of falling out? Should we are, you know, would it please God for us to turn them away as heathens or would it please God for them to accept them back the way Christ accepted Peter? And so, and that was honestly, that was one of the uh-huh. first big, yeah, that was one of the first big controversies over membership was simply those who had denied the faith in front of uh, the threat of death you know, should we give them another chance, or have they already proven that they are they're false? Um, let's make this interesting, Zach. What yes. would you have chosen to do if you were a church leader in that situation? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Robert. And in the light, deer in headlight. Here we go. You know, that's a good question. I mean, I would like to think that I would keep in mind Peter. Uh, who did deny Jesus? You know, because that—that's something that I try to keep in in my head. It's like I pray that if I'm ever presented with you know, some form of persecution, where you know somebody holds a gun to my head, that I would have the you know, resolution to see it to the end, kind of like um, Rachel did whenever she was Columbine. Um But at the same time. I could pull a Peter and 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 deny Jesus and and you know and be riddled with guilt for however long I lived and, and so I think I think for me I would look to Peter's example and how Jesus restored them or restored him and I feel like I should and try to restore them I think that's what I would have done if it'd been me. What about you, Robert? What would you have done? Indeed, that's actually my own response. Um, I wanted to make sure I had one before I asked you. I didn't want to be like, but, uh, Wait, hang on, how'd that go? I don't know if I repeated that verbatim, but it's a very complex there set of go. words. But uh, yeah, that's actually my own take on it. I would have looked here into Judas because... Honestly, I think Jesus would, and I'm stepping on a limb here, but I'm not that worried about it. I'm pretty confident. I think Jesus would have even taken Judas back, but Judas himself chose not to accept mm-hmm. Judas. Went, and he never repented, as far as we know. All the evidence says he just went out and killed himself out of grief before he had the chance to repent. I don't believe Judas was really a believer, but I believe he still could have been had he chosen a different path if he hadn't allowed grief to consume him. Because uh, Peter actually says in the beginning of Acts that Judas goes his own way. That's obviously innuendo for hell. Um, he wasn't happy about it, but he acknowledged it. So I'm thinking just like Peter, just like Judas, if it's up to us, bring them back in. They have a chance to redeem themselves. They have a chance to 
even if they're not really saved, they're still alive. Therefore, there is hope for them to become saved in the future. Or maybe even the guilt uh, and the grief of what they did already by denying him will lead them to the true thing. Um, I think the, the grief of denying Jesus in Peter's heart was on top of the Holy Spirit, of course. I think that was the thing that finally solidified his commitment when, you know, the Acts showed up, when the apostles took over. And so you have Peter going from a follower to a leader, a combination of that grief and by the Holy Spirit igniting that grief to turn it into action. So you always have that chance for to do that in the church. Now, there's one concern Zach mentioned that I hadn't even considered before is if persecution starts again, you know, what would happen with those who might be informants? And so I would say it might be pertinent not to let them in on all of the secrets of the church for a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, definitely allow them back in so that they can be uh, plugged back into the church or spiritually maybe plugged in for the very first time if that grief can leave to lead to genuine repentance and faith for the first time after a falsehood before. But um, a big thing about it is, you know, Peter chose to come back once he realized Christ would have him. Judas killed Judas. So the idea of, you know, if someone, in a way this could be applicable to the church today, is if someone walks away from the faith, let they themselves walk away. Mm-hmm. As long as you very diligently and wisely that door open for them, allow them to, if they so choose, allow their own destruction to come. If if they're unfaithful, destructive people, um, you know, always have that grace open, but have the wisdom to of let them go where where they choose to go if that's who they really are. Yeah, I think I think uh John in his letter um if they were of us then they would remain with us mm-hmm. but since they departed from us now of course in this context uh John is talking about people who fell away and adapted false beliefs and things of that nature but um <clears throat> he's talking about that I think it, it's applicable to us today. I mean, it's like if, if someone was a true believer, uh, you know, at some point God would bring them back to the fold. I mean, I'm not saying that, um, or maybe I am saying, like what God would do is he would allow someone to be out on a line at some point through circumstances, through pain, God draws him the, that individual back into the fold. Um, maybe it's in for the first time, like kind of like what Robert said, or maybe it's a recommitment uh, to it. Um, I know there's brothers and sisters out there that might disagree with that, um, and we are okay to disagree on that issue. But at the end of the day, it's like, what is the fruit? What is the result of that? If the person, you know, genuinely believed. In their young age, walked away from it and then come back. You know, did they never believe to begin with, and then now they do believe, or did they believe then and now they do again? At the end of the day, you have a brother or sister who's returned, like a prodigal son. Yeah, you know, their past is their past. Leave that between them and the Lord, and and love them and disciple those who want to be discipled and move forward for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, I, I've been sitting here listening and thinking a little bit, uh, bringing it back to the ancient martyrs and the people who chose to survive them for all the wrong reasons. The idea that you know the the witnesses that the the the, the martyrs were meant to be. You know, uh, Hebrew says we're surrounded by a faithful group of witnesses. That's true of figures in scripture. That's true of people that we know personally who maybe raised us in church or were good Christian examples in our lives. Them, it was true of the apostles themselves and the martyrs. Just try to imagine what it would be like to know that you failed the brother and the sister that were in the room with you. They chose to go and you chose to stay. And so just knowing that, you know, they're witnessing to you by their death the midst of your betrayal by choosing to live by denying Jesus himself. So, I mean, it's, uh, I said it in the last episode that the, the, the blood of the martyrs 
watered the seed of the church. And, it, you know, one thing that, to really take note of as we look back at them and apply it loosely, again, we're not a persecuted culture right now, but loosely to us, you know, that same blood that watered the seed, those who chose to survive for all the wrong reasons, they're part of that seed. Their faith was, those who ever came back, their faith was watered by those who passed the test where they failed. It doesn't mean doesn't mean that they were less sinful than them. doesn't mean they were in any way superior or superhuman to them. It was just people who made a different choice. Mm-hmm. People who chose to let it go for the greater than those people who chose to avoid the pain because the reality hit them too hard in the face. Now they've got to come to terms with who they are now that their life goes on. I would imagine probably a lot of survivor's guilt for those who really believed or really came to believe later after the fact. So you have, uh, honestly, you have grace and truth combined. Uh, like we say, we keep saying grace and truth were combined in Jesus. Scripture says it. Uh, grace and truth were combined in this situation. Uh, the truth was met by those who were killed, and grace was put upon those who were left behind. And when persecution... Um, Maybe Zach knows. I don't really know off the top of my head. Maybe there were those who passed on persecution in phase one, mm-hmm. lived to see another phase, and they may have chosen to go the second time because of the first martyr's witness. Yeah. Um, nothing. I mean, obviously, there's probably there probably is examples of that. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Uh, not for many hundreds of years later, which we'll probably get to different episode different time oh yeah but uh, yeah one thing i've thought of that kind of connects the martyrs to us in the modern non-persecuted world other than the simple fact we share their faith talked about how their witness to us and the reason we are here is because of them but also just applying ourselves from a persecuted culture to a non-persecuted culture we have this idea that um, we have so many stories about ways the church as an entity has betrayed us, hurt us. We never want to go back to the church because of what the church has been to us in the past. It's easy to forget that there are so many different varieties of people and personalities, attitudes, uh, past experiences. There may be people out there who actually feel as if they themselves have failed the church. So it's not about how the church has cut you. You feel like you've cut them and now you're afraid to come back. Uh, those who've been cut are angry. Those who feel like they've done the cutting and realize what they've done, they feel too guilty. So uh, I would turn this into a brief you know, message of open grace to you out there who might be listening with that fear or that attitude or simply the knowledge of what you've done to the pa- in the past. If I mean, if it is at all possible, there's still a place in the church for you. Even if, uh, heaven forbid, even if the local church that you were once part of refuses to take you back, there's still a place for you in the church of Christ. If you're truly repentant, if you realize the mistake you've made, there's a place for you to plug in. Even if, sadly, God has to put you in a place where there are new faces, God doesn't, God is not finished uh, you know, with your journey of faith and using you as a servant within his church. Um, whatever variety of story that may have been, it's not over. Uh, if someone once told me, if you're still alive, that literally means that God is not done with your story. He could have given you a heart attack this morning, but he didn't. Yeah, I mean, and and just kind of telling that in, I mean, you look at instances in Scripture. I mean, you had Paul who, I mean, we've talked about this before, but you had Paul who... Start off persecuting the church. You who, if he did not directly kill people, he at least indirectly, and not only indirectly, but he also agreed with it. You know, he I'll say enjoyed it, but he condoned it, and and go from that, and and not allowing that um, that guilt or shame to consume him, and yet still instead and serve and find a way because in the beginning no one wanted to believe him no one no one wanted to go up and and help him in the beginning whenever he first 
became a believer and right before he was baptized, any of the people were like, I know who this guy is. No, Lord, you don't, this, this isn't a good guy. He's a bad guy. The reality of it is, is we're all bad guys. I mean, we may not all have the same story, but we're all villains. Um, we all need a savior and we all need Jesus. And, and that's the important part. I think that Robert's, you know, with me in this is like, no matter where your story is at, God can still use you. Mm-hmm. It's not done with you. I mean, there, there's, there is hope. There is possibility of tomorrow. Every day is a new day. And, and if you think that, there's no chance, there's no hope, couldn't be more wrong. And it's a good thing that you're wrong. It's actually, it's like kind of like one of those moments where like, you know what? I do have, I still have a chance and thank God I have a chance because God's not done with me yet. And, and maybe you have to find another church. Maybe you need to repent to people. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness of people. You know, we seek, um, uh, godly counsel before you go and do some of those things. Just not, I mean, not speaking into anybody's life specifically, but I mean, it's out there, and you feel like you need to do something, you know, seek forgiveness or whatever. You know, maybe maybe talk to a counselor, maybe talk to a pastor, help kind of walk you through that process, um, so that you know, I guess the glory most of all, and that um, that. Uh, get restored to the, the fellowship because that's what it's about. I mean, about finding, finding where, where you are, where you could be and, and trusting God in that. Absolutely. So, I mean, honestly, both sides of the martyr story apply to us in that way. If those who gave their lives, we get to celebrate what they were willing to do, uh, the mighty way that God used it. And the chilling way that this kind of sent a message that there is so much more to this than just another philosophy, just another spirituality. But for those who fell away, it's hope because there are no heroes but Jesus. That none of us can rise up to be some uh, hero in a cape. None of us are flawless except for him. So it, the, the inspiration soars when you look at the gospel the reality hits, and yet it doesn't have to sting if you understand that you are in the same boat as every last one of us. For those of us who feel like uh, daily failures or people who feel like they're failures for something particular in their past, knowing that you're in the same boat as those who gave their lives and are heralded as heroes, because they only did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Take that away, and they would have had no strength to do what they did whatsoever. But just on both sides of the fence, the Jesus himself still speaks to turn all this back to him. You know, as the Lord of life, those who died, he's the Lord of life. For those who uh, fell away, he's the Lord of second chances. For you and me who live in a non-persecuted world and we're comfortable, still the God who wants to use us in that comfort. He actually wants to take those resources we have they never had, spread his gospel farther than ever before. Simply, are we willing to use it the way that they were used, whether by life or death, or past failures in the hope of future victories because of him, thanks to him alone? It all comes back to him and him alone, and that's the only thing that gave them the gumption to die was because they knew he was still here. They saw him, they touched him, they talked to him. He's the God you can touch. He's the God you can talk to. It's a shame that so many... I'll say so many churches, but really pop culture in general, just culture at large that thinks of church or thinks of Christianity, they have this idea that we worship God as if he were still in the Old Testament. They think we worship this God who's too far away, who's too lofty, who looks down in judgment on us. It's not someone we can relate to or talk to or reach out and touch. That's one reason I've actually heard this from from young people before. It's one reason that New Age or Eastern religions have become so much more popular as an alternative to Christianity. Something more exciting, something you can touch, something more immediate. It's because they don't understand the incarnation. They don't get it. He's not here physically in this room. We can't reach out and hold his hand or pat him on the back. 
the fact that he became a man, just the fact, simply because he's not in the room doesn't mean that he is not coming back. The story's not over until we get to physically see and touch him again. That's the big thing is the martyrs give their testimony that he is the God that you can touch. It's why the brutality of something like physical death doesn't have its sting is because he's a God who physically rose from the dead. If it's just a metaphor or some philosophical idea for morality, their deaths were literally wasted. They didn't have to do it, but they did because they understood just how real and immediate the gospel story really is. So much more than just a story about the past. It's pointing back to something that has a direct impact on the future and on now once you truly understand what they're saying because if this is really real just like the computer in front of me recording this podcast is real i can tap the plastic i can twiddle the keys i can reach out and touch the sponge of my microphone he is here and he is affecting everything that is here even though i don't see him right now as i speak not only that kind of kind of take your point robert is not only is it physical, but I mean, people are drawn to these other religions because they think it's it's more tangible, it's more accessible. What other religion out there promises, like, when you become a Christian, like a part of God, like part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit actually dwells within inside of you. Like mm-hmm. a part of God actually is is incorporated into your soul, like it, it, mm-hmm. it is merged with your being. Like, I don't know how you can get more tangible than that of of part of part of the Trinity of God, you know, is is actually dwelling within you and reinvigorating your very essence Mm -hmm. and shaping who you are. And I don't see how people can just so just brazenly turn away from that as like, Oh, you know, the, the God of the Christian faith is not accessible or is not real enough for me when a part of him is physically dwelling within you. Yeah. yeah. I I think, I think some of it, some of it is a a lack of understanding. No, it's, no, unfortunately there's a lot of, especially in the you know the United States have there's there's good things about the autonomy of the church in that you know, they can kind of go and they can believe their own thing and they can do their own thing the problem with that is they can believe their own thing and do their own thing so um in the good way it means the church itself can dictate itself what it believes and what it doesn't believe and it can adhere to the scriptures um flip side of that is some movement can come along claiming to be Christianity while it's actually not and actually oh, cause more yeah. harm and more confusion than yeah. anything. So yeah. I think I think there's personal misinformation out there. I think there's also just personal lack of desire. You know, whether it be someone's misinformed or they actually are of their own volition choosing to not believe truth out there, actually choosing to walk the path of destruction of their own free will, or um, you know, or having a misunderstanding of what these religions are. I mean, we we live in America where we can we don't see fruit of the ideology. You like if you go to India. You see the fruit of the cycle of samsara. You see caste system, even though it's illegal there. You still see it. You still see, you know, like in again, this is India. You know, you see like a woman get raped or whatever, and they have the idea that well, that was in a past life. You. You were a rapist, therefore you're getting your just desserts now. You need to accept that. You need mm. to embrace that. And you'll be closer to 
you know, Nirvana, if you're Buddhist or whatever deity you choose to worship. I mean, that's, that is Indian belief out there. You know, that is, but in the Western society, we think about reincarnation as a good thing. Whereas India, reincarnation is a bad thing. They don't want to be a reincarnated. They want to, want to sidestep that. They want to attune that oneness with the great divine of whatever deity or, or lack of deity, depending on what, what religion they believe or whatever. In our Western society, we've kind of buffet barred it and don't even truly understand what reincarnation is and, and what it would mean. Like In our Western society, whenever someone something terrible happens to someone, we go and say, goodness, that is terrible. That should not have happened. We need to fight to make sure that doesn't happen again. And we need to find this person and we need to arrest them so that no more children are hurt or no more women are abused or men for that matter or what have you or whatever circumstances. Whereas in an Eastern, Eastern religion, it's kind of like, that is your lot in life. You are suffering because of your karma of the past life. Before, you just need to accept it and move on. And the faster you accept it and move on, the closer you are to attaining that section of nirvana or what have you. I mean, that flies in the face of our morality. That flies in the face like, oh my gosh, you know, something evil just happened. And it is truly evil. It's not some illusion where we think evil exists no it actually exists this was wrong and this was bad it does not need to happen anymore i think there's that too i think there's just misunderstanding we have a, a buffet bar of religions that we don't even truly understand the concepts what it actually entail what it actually means instead we've got this cookie cutter idea of what Eastern religions believe or what have you, not realizing that, you know, it, it justifies just about every evil out there. There'd be slavery, uh, rape, incest, what have you. I mean, it justifies those things. And you don't, and you don't stop and think about it. You just think, oh, well, I'm more tolerant than the Christian out there who, it's like, it's like you, you're missing Missing the the tree that's right before you because of the forest, or you know, it may not be the right expression there, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, too, it's it's those other religions. Um, they they put the the onus of whatever their version of salvation, nirvana, you know, what have you. It puts that onus of control. It keeps it with the individual, mm -hmm. you know, and and it goes back to the whole thing of of that's attractive to people because it it keeps them in control of of their own actions. It's it's that illusion of what I do can dictate my salvation, my acts, my works, my words. Mm -hmm dictate um uh uh my my salvation through there and it's 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 in it it's it's so it's it's sad in one way because people strive to to hold on to that level of control but in doing that they're striving for something they're never going to obtain just like that version of nirvana or whatever that higher consciousness and whatever religion that they work towards based on their actions they're never going to achieve that but because it is something that they can control they, they stick with it even though it's it's a it's a it's a losing uh, a battle that, that they're never going to achieve yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a third party that wants them to think that they can achieve it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, you took the thought right out of my head. I mean, those other religions, they always emphasize, you're always looking for a light. 
of course, ours is the light of Christ. John said, you know, he was in him was life and this life was the light of the world. The world loved darkness rather than light, so they shrank away from it. Now, these other religions, they always emphasize finding the light within yourself. Now, we actually believe there's a light within ourselves, but he happens to be God in the Holy Spirit come into us and we have him inside us as we live our lives. Now, other religions will teach you that there's a light within you that's always been there. Now, the big problem with it, and the just the reason that that is kind of a hopeless spinning in circles, is this the concept that this light is a part of you. Like it's literally, it's not a part of God. It's a part of you. And some will even go so so far as to say that you're a piece of God. But uh, that really is just it, it's philosophical narcissism. But uh. What it it does when when you reach for the light inside yourself, according to these other religions, you yourself are broken. That's the reason you're searching. Now, if I, we have a friend who loves to to talk apologetics, and one way he describes it is, lost in the woods, why in the world would you stop and ask yourself for directions? Because you're the one who's lost. And so, <laughs> if you can't do it, what makes you think you can do it? <laughs> <laughs> that I've never thought of it that way. That makes perfect sense, but that I've never thought of it in that term. Yeah, I I I loved it when I first heard him say that. I was like, man, I wish I thought of that Ow. first. Right, <laughs> strike to the pride. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it was just the perfect way to describe what's going on. Is you know, you are lost, you are broken. Almost everyone will agree with that. That's why depression is a thing. That's why a sense of emptiness is a thing. It's That's why, why suicide is a thing. Absolutely a thing. It's why midlife crises are a thing. It's why broken families are... I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Real things, no matter what you believe, they are there. So, you go... You look into yourself for those answers. You were the one who was broken. What makes you so sure that the the answer that's inside of you from the moment you were born wouldn't be broken as well? Because you yourself are the broken one, and you're trying to pull this out of yourself, trying to pull something that's just not there. It's like reaching. Now this one is mine. Of course, it's a lot cheesier because it's mine. Velveeta. Velveeta. But uh, reach into a trash bag and try to pull out an elephant. It, we know it would never fit in there. So if you're broken, what makes you think wholeness is inside there somewhere? It has to come from somewhere outside, something that has never been broken. And that is what the gospel is. It's something outside of you, above you, holer, holier than you, something that's much more perfect than you will ever be, come down to indwell you and fill that that is within you, that brokenness, that crack, that stain, however you want to describe it, that's the answer. That's the cock, the band-aid, the, the solution. It's not there to condemn you. It's there to heal you. It's there to give you the true freedom. It's there to give you, well, I mean, and, and think of it like this. I mean, if, if you give in to your flesh, then your flesh is what will then control you and what will, you will cons be consumed by it. Whereas... God, he he puts uh, the fence in place to protect you, to keep you from going outside and beyond into that that darkness, that dark realm. It keeps you safe. It keeps you um, uh, uh, fulfilled in the right way, you know. Um, and it, it's it's crazy, you know. Maybe the God that created you might actually know best for you instead of you yourself like again looking at the the roadmap asking yourself for directions i mean maybe you know maybe surrendering and saying your lord is hard to swallow but at the same time i mean you know if you look to yourself and he's like okay well i'm just gonna pull my boot you know pull the strings of my bootstraps up eventually one day those those strings are gonna snap that despair, whenever that happens, is going to be truly burden that you cannot lift. You know what? That's the thing is God's like, come here, trust me, leave me. I will lift that weight from your shoulders and you will have a true rest that you don't even understand. You can't even comprehend because you're, you're 
and maybe yourself have been going and going and going and going and going and going and you don't realize it, that the enemy wants you to go because if you stop, you feel the weight and you might look to something else besides yourself to, for a solution and actually find the true healing and then the burden will roll away as the old hymn says. Yeah. And I understand from the outside looking in, I felt the same way before I became a believer. There's few thoughts more scary than the thought that you're going to let someone else have, call it the throne of our lives, the say-so. The idea that, you know, God would be a moral authority over you can be terrifying or can feel stifling. For me, now that I'm here from the inside looking out, I'm actually perfectly content with Christian morality because it's given me a sense of structure. It's kind of like having free reign in a massive amusement park and you really don't know where to go first. And if anyone had any suggestions, please tell me because <laughs> I'll waste 40 minutes wandering around if I could have just gone to the fun stuff first. And in a way, that's what God is doing. He is giving you direction. He's keeping you from wasting all those hours from wandering around wondering what to do next. It's why kids waste so many years not knowing what degree they want to major in, and they end up never going to school at all. Um, I heard someone in their 40s, it was as a joke, but I totally got what he was saying. He said, I'm still not sure what I want to do when I grow up, and he laughed. You know, this lack of sense of direction. We want the freedom, but once we have it, we don't know what to do with it. We're splash. We're, we're doggy paddling in the ocean. And just to have structure, it's it's not like it's sapping your life away. It's giving actual structure and story to your life so that the story's headed. You know, putting chapters in a book and making the chapters finite so that they actually end and a new one begins, it doesn't stifle the book. It makes sure that you can get through to the last page so you can read what the story says. This structure, it... It's like Zach said, it's protect you from the the awful things that humans can, you know, decide for themselves before it's too late. But another dimension to look at it, it holds you in so that you know where you are going. You're confident every step of the way because you have a blueprint that's not of your own doing. A blueprint that's from something above you. And in the end, you know that your story will matter because it's part of this greater blueprint. It's the thrill of knowing that you are part of something bigger than yourself. Because if it's all about you, then you really are just a speck among billions. Know it, even though we don't live our lives or think like that. But when you surrender to something so much higher than yourself, you become part of this bigger narrative that covers all of history. You get to be a part of that. Well, I can't think of a better way to end uh, than that. I mean, that that pretty much sums up everything. And I do know we're kind of right at time here. So uh, we'll wrap up there, um, unless you guys have any any last-minute things. Oh, um, Amen. And uh, where do we want to go uh, the next few episodes? I was thinking about, because since we've kind of talked about, like, the first century, the early church, I was wondering if we could talk about maybe the Council of Nicaea, kind of what that is and kind of what that isn't. You know, like, oh, it gave Christians freedom from persecution. And, you know, like, what it actually is. You know, Christianity existed before that, but there's a lot of ideas like especially from like dan brown who like well, that's when the bible was written and you yeah. know all the <laughs> doctrines didn't they weren't there until it was finalized by constantine you oh, know yeah. i feel like I feel like that's a good time good place to plug it in is right here and what did what did you say it was the council of what council of nicaea mm -hmm. n-i-c-c-a i believe um n-i-c-a-e Go. Council of Nicaea. They actually debated quite a few things. One of them was, um, I mean, this is probably for the episode itself, but <laughs> just between us, they uh, that that's the council where they debated the hypostatic union, trying to solidify Jesus's identity, and uh, they did kind of pin down the canon of scripture, but 
what Dan Brown doesn't realize is the canon was already in place it's, before that. They were just agreeing on what was already there. And that, and that's the point that I kind of want to hit on. It's like, you know, this is making Christianity a state religion. So mm-hmm. as a state religion, it has to come up with these stances. It was the opportunity, and, and we can even focus on, like, what were some of the benefits and what were some of the bad things happened from this, you know, kind of like, like, because in the history of things, it kind of like, kind of flows into that, because we've talked about the persecutions, we've we've talked about Jesus, we've talked about the historicity of Jesus, mm-hmm. we've talked about the early church in the book of Acts, yep. and now we're talked about the martyrs because of that, and then we can move on into... A whole new world where uh, everything turned around. Yeah. And the good things about it and the bad things about it. Because there were some good things and there were some bad things. Yeah. Uh, well, and... I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'm excited for that. And I think we should go there because in these 17 episodes we've recorded so far, I've stuck with you guys. Like as far as following the logic and knowing what you guys are talking about, I have never heard of this at all this is completely brand new so this will be me learning something completely from scratch so i'm excited about it movie oh yeah that's uh, wow i'm gonna have to do maybe just a little bit of research (laughs) before (laughs) yeah no you're you're cool just to get a just to get a foundation Um, (laughs) wow uh, it's the it's the first it's the first organized Roman invention because you have in the book of Acts you have like where James and Peter and Paul all get together they, and I, I mentioned it earlier where they hash out like does someone need to become a Jew and then they become a Christian or they become a Christian that's that's found in the book of Acts they they record that. And so there were numerous councils. This council of Nicaea was like, like kind of like what Robert said, where there were some things that were solidified. The canon was completed in the sense that you know, it got a chance for the entire eastern part of the empire and the western part of the empire that didn't necessarily always connect. It got, it got them the chance to come together and then to share... Uh, the doctrines, the sacred doctrines that they each believed, and they all had the basically the same thing. It still gave them a chance to kind of hash things out. Yep. And uh, just something fun to say: it's not a joke. I'm dead serious. Real historical Santa Claus was at this. I mean, jolly old Saint Nicholas himself, and he slapped a dude in the face. Literally. Yeah, he did. <laughs> A man spouted heresy and made Nicholas so angry, he slapped him in the face. You could Google this right now and see what I'm talking about. Oh, we have to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. All right. Well, um, yeah, I'm excited for that one. I think that's a great topic. Well, it's going to be fun. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, This was a fun night. Thanks for recording. Oh, you're welcome, man. uh, To our listeners out there, thanks for joining us as well. Again, uh, visit us on our Facebook page, Achieving Christian Thought Podcast, or visit us directly on our website at theactpod.com. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, dive into some brand new stuff that I've never heard of next time. So again, I'm excited. So thank you all. Yeah, thank you.